Welcome to Saltivation. The Saltivation Show is a podcast series featuring the leading voices in salt, where we talk about the issues and strategies to help you make sense of state and local tax. Here's part two of the conversation where we address what these revisions to Public Law 86-272 has on states and taxpayers. Stace, what are you seeing? Because some of those, you know, kind of the software code robot akinning, I think the cookie concept, you know, cookie nexus has been around, but then kind of it almost making its way into public law 86, 272 states. What are you hearing a lot about that and been thinking about? Because you can you can rarely go to a website that says, hey, we're going to put cookies on whatever device it is that you're shopping from or looking from. So what are you seeing, Brian? You said 11 pieces, kind of 11 call-outs, states that we're paying particular interest in, you know, with some of our internet retailers. Um, there's a couple that I think have, I've gotten more questions on. Or and Brian, you know, obviously this is all new, and you know, we'll talk maybe a little bit about your opinion on how this is all gonna, you know, perhaps even get um, put into law in some of these states, right? But I think a lot of the questions that I've gotten are around chat boxes, for example. So think about, you know, if I have maybe even my Xfinity is not working or something, I can go onto the chat box. And it could be a bot that's talking to me, right, and trying to fix my problem. Or it could be somebody who's, you know, behind behind the scenes, behind that chat box, who's actually typing. Those cases, I think it starts with a bot and then you might get transferred to a real person. But so I guess in your mind, is that bot enough? I guess going back to your example of, oh, if you have a robot going into a jurisdiction and um, performing some kind of activity that would be considered business activity. So is that akin then to the chat box bot? Yeah. Um, well, I, I think there is a well. L- l- let's uh, of course always begin with question number one, and and that is what what, what is the nature of that interaction? Sure. So if the nature of the interaction is solicitation, then the discussion is over, right? Uh, but but if that chat chat box or the the system somehow is engaging in some activity that extends beyond solicitation and the, the some of the scenarios in in the revision talk about uh, customer assistance so that's you know a, a typical situ- uh, situation so if 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 the system is engaging in in customer assistance which is not solicitation then that activity is likely to be not protected, uh, applying the framework that that I quoted uh, a moment ago. And therefore, the out-of-state business would not have immunity under the language of the statute. Let me also make a point in in this regard, which I I don't think I I did earlier. And and, and that is that, that it's important to note that what the MTC has attempted to do here is not to engage in some policymaking activity, enterprise, but rather to attempt to apply the statute from 1959 
to to these modern business activities. So uh, the members of the work group saw their responsibility more as a matter of statutory interpretation. And it's a challenging matter, right? Because back in 1959, there was no internet or, th or thought of an internet. But, but applying the principles that one finds from the plain language of the statute and also from the legislative history can be a guide to determine how to apply the statute to things like the example that you've just described. But, you know, the follow on to that is how does a how does a taxpayer know, right? So if in my chat box, I'm asking for, hey, Xfinity, I would like to add more service versus, hey, Xfinity, my tower's not working. How does Xfinity know what I'm doing? Is it because those are tracked? Is it kind of like a voluntary system where taxpayers might have to just say, well, we allow both through these chat boxes, so we're just going to assume we're not immune? I guess that's where some of these other questions we come from clients where it's, hey, I don't know even know how to apply this or how to track this. Good question. Challenging subject. Neither the MTC nor Brian Hamer uh, drafted public law 86-272. And don't um, worry, there's a disclaimer at the end of these, every, at the end of every episode, that we are not uh -huh. providing tax advice or something like that. Right, right. But but I, I would say a couple of things. First of all, I imagine that in your example, Xfinity or, or whomever right. Right. is tracking the activity of those bots. And second, I would guess that kind of in, in, in the situation that you're describing, there, there's an expectation that out-of-state customers, or I guess depending on your perspective, the in-state customers <laughs> are are going to be utilizing this tool not just to order new service, but also to seek customer assistance. And uh, if we're talking about a large multi-state operation with lots of customers, perhaps there can be an expectation that customers are going to be using the tool if they're invited to do so to seek customer assistance of, of one kind or another. And, and, and ultimately, it's going to be the responsibility of taxpayers to understand the kind of activity they're engaging in in the taxing state. And in, and in some ways, and, and maybe it was simpler in the old days, but everything was simpler in the old days, businesses might send a sales force into a taxing state with, with an expectation that the sales force would engage essentially in solicitation. But at times or over time, those uh, salespeople might also be tasked with additional responsibilities. And to the extent that from time to time, they did in fact engage in those additional activities, let's say market research or, or any number of things, those activities would defeat the, uh, the protection of the statute. So it was incumbent upon the business to understand what the sales force was in fact doing in those remote locations. And I totally agree with you there because those are conversations that we always have with our clients, you know, because we'll hear from a client, oh, so-and-so is in California and they are, but they're a salesperson. 
And then once you start peeling away the layer of the onion of what that person's doing, come to find out what they're doing is not just solicitation. So I agree with you there. And we have lots of conversations around that. I wanted to also kind of go back to something you said about Wayfair. And I can tell you that so much more conversation about public light of 6272 has come up in the wake of Wayfair. And not just back to you know your comment about how they they used some of the arguments from Wayfair in the preamble to this new statement or to the um, you know, I don't know if you want to call it new statement, but expanded statement, maybe I should say. We called revised or updated. Okay, uh-huh. okay. You know, the interest in public light 6272 or the application of it, I think, has become more prevalent in the wake of Wayfair because if you think about it, right, you've got all these taxpayers that are typically selling a tangible good that's subject to sales tax. And then the natural then byproduct of that is, okay, well what are you doing in the states that you're selling into from an income tax perspective? Are you potentially protected? And so that's where we've kind of seen more conversation around public law 6272, honestly, since Wayfair came about. I mean, obviously we were applying those rules in the past, but I think it's just become a bigger topic of conversation since Wayfair has was passed. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, now with these this revised statement, I think what we're seeing too is some confusion on the recruiting side. So when I I say recruiting, the fact that if a taxpayer has a online application and somebody in state A can, you know, go online, apply for a job, and then that actually defeats public law 6272 now, that's where I'm also getting questions is, oh gosh, what if said person in state A doesn't stay there. What if they go to state B? What does that mean for me? And I don't know if you have any comments on the um, employment piece or not, or you know what your thoughts might be on that, but that's where we're also getting questions. Yeah, well, it's interesting to hear you say that. And w- what I've heard from other practitioners mirror what, you, what you're saying, that that perhaps that particular scenario in, in the revised statement is receiving more attention than any of the others. And uh, that, that may have to do with, of course, many, many businesses now engage in online recruitment and application of, of, of new employees through an online tool. So it's, it's increasingly omnipresent. And, and also, perhaps, it's an activity that businesses have not considered in the past as potentially defeating their Public Law 86272 protection. So I can see how that in, is engendering a lot of discussion. And, and you know, presumably, there, there are going to be many questions kind of on the margin i think as as a as a general matter if you accept the framework again that that i've described you reached the conclusion that this kind of internet act, uh, activity interaction would defeat the protections of, of the statute because what we're talking about is something that's certainly not solicitation but i have no doubt that that there will be situations on the margin that are going to raise questions and 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 both states and 
businesses and their representatives are going to have to think hard about how, again, the 60-year-old statute relates to those situations. Yeah, because I think, you know, the way I, uh, the way I, or what concerns me about it, right, is that and the questions I have about it really are, you know, was it really kind of intended to be that if I'm applying for a job and I physically sit in Colorado, that the intention was, oh, well, that would mean that I would be physically sitting in Colorado the entire time. And that would, you know, because I I applied for that job, I'm here in Colorado, that would um, then cause that immunity for public law 6272 to be defeated in Colorado. But then, you know, like I said, I think a lot of taxpayers are worried about, well, we've got you know, you know, we've got a little bit of a transient workforce, you know, some of that's starting to open back up a little bit, right? And, you know, what happens if I'm applying for a job in Colorado, you know, because I physically am here, but I'm actually going to be moving to California to do that job. And so I think that those are some that we will have to see get flushed out as time goes on. So, so l- l- let me react to that. First of all, w- with respect to the, the person now in Colorado and then moving to California, so what, what, what's relevant is the particular business activity associated with this online hiring process. And, 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 and so what's relevant is where the potential employee is, the, the job applicant, at the time of that interaction. So there's that. And beyond that, the world has changed and it hasn't changed. So the the statute is all about, and we talked a little bit about this at at the beginning, but about protecting businesses that engage entirely in solicitation or activities ancillary to solicitation. And, and and we ha- have to think of the statute now in 2021 kind of in, in that way. So clearly this is an activity that's not solicitation. And 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 beyond that, I, I, I think it's worth noting, you mentioned kind of the issue of, in a sense, physical presence, maybe. I don't know if this was ex- exactly your point. But back in 1959, Congress actually considered a number of different bills to preempt state taxing authority. And and, and the other bills all provided that a, a business must have physical presence in the taxing state for the state to impose tax. And those alternative pieces of legislation, those alternative bills, were all rejected by the Congress. And instead, they enacted the bill that became Public Law 86272, which has no explicit physical presence requirement. And I think this is something that we lose sight of. I, I think there's perhaps traditionally been this notion that there is a physical presence requirement in the statute, but it just doesn't exist. And as I say, specifically, Congress rejected that approach. And that's a good reminder, I think, for the audience, right? Because I think we do get some questions even you know, prior to this new or the revised statement well, what is solicitation, right? And and this, and you know, in our today's economy, right? It's not as if there's necessarily boots on the ground all over the place, you know, mm-hmm. door to door, like there were when Public Guide 6272 was first passed. 
And so we do get questions about, well, what type of, you know, quote unquote advertising counts, right? Is it, you know, something that we would have to physically send to a taxpayer, you know, like, you know, akin to a catalog or some kind of flyer, or is it social media, et cetera? And so we do have some questions that come up around that as well. And so that's a good reminder, I think, for the audience to say, okay, well, you don't have to have boots on the ground in order to be soliciting in the jurisdiction. Right. Being soliciting or engaging in some other activity. Right. Well, and I want to, because in theory, you know, with kind of this modernizing, you know, public law 86272, this is a good thing for states because, you know, it's kind of expanding or specifically calling out activities that may have been protected, but that aren't protected anymore. Specifically, what do the states do from here? What do you, you know, what do they have to do to kind of adopt this modernized language and the revisions and whatnot? Like how can they glom on to kind of benefit from this? Because in theory, you know, a company who was, had a bot, or, you know, had a chat box or whatever was, you know, it wasn't specifically identified as an unprotected activity, right? Now it is. They should really be filing an income tax return in Arizona, for example. Arizona is going to benefit from that. So what does Arizona need to do in order to benefit from this? So for, first, let me say, believe this or not, that the the, the motivation for the statement of information and the recent revisions of the statement is really to benefit taxpayers. That the thought was that it's important for taxpayers to understand where states are coming from because it's all about notice. Taxpayers should not be taken by surprise. And uh, that, that was certainly at the top of, of the mind of the members of the work group that worked on the revisions. So to specifically address your question, Meredith, I would say that the ball is in the state's courts, right? The MTC does not have lawmaking authority. And, and states really have a few different options. Um, they could just disregard the work that has been done by their colleagues on, on the work group. I hope that's not going to happen because if nothing else, it will break my heart after all the effort that has been put into this effort. I mean, it um, wouldn't be the first time any sort of <laughs> practitioner did something with the best interest at heart and it goes ignored. So you can add it to the list if it happens. <laughs> really? Second, states can just allow the audit process to run its course, have issues arise, and then perhaps apply the principles that we've been discussing to audited taxpayers. Um, or, or, or third, states can be proactive. And in some public fashion, formal or informal, through adopting a regulation or just providing some kind of guidance, express that they're going to accept some or all of the components of the statement, which has been the case with respect to past iterations of the statement. We at the MTC hope that states will adopt the, the latter proposal. Let, let's be as transparent as, as possible because that's 
generally the best way of, of, of doing business and treating taxpayers, but it, it also will likely avoid litigation. You know, I think we probably can all agree on that. If, if a business receives a large assessment uh, based on the principles contained in the statement, they're likely to fight back and there's going to be litigation or there may well be litigation. And, and although we feel strongly that the statement is on sound, has a sound legal basis, you know, litigation is, is always painful and you, and you never know for certain how it's going to, to, to turn out. Whereas I'm of the mind and I'd like to, to hear your opinions, but if, if, if states do announce their attention, intentions, it's more likely given I think that the serious legal basis for the interpretations that we've talked about, that most taxpayers are going to get with the program and, and start filing returns on, on, on the basis described in, in the statement. And I agree with you there. If the states do you know, promulgate their rules or you know, incorporate the revised statement into their law and policy. Um, I think you bring up a good point though, and that you know, we we have 50 states, right? And they all have their own rules and um, administration and everything. And so you bring up a good point where if a taxpayer were to get audited and a state were to put these rules or, you know, apply these rules, you know, in the MTC's mind, this is an interpretation. And so I think it's a good reminder for taxpayers to say, you know, it's very possible since this is an interpretation of rules that have always been there, that it's possible that a state could audit and bring it up. And I envision that that will happen. There will be some aggressive states out there. I think that will do that. And I think there are going to be also some taxpayers that have been claiming 86272 that are going to fight it, that it is going to be a material, you know, amount of tax that they're willing to fight, you know, kind of similar to, you know, what Wayfair was willing to do and take kind of that sales tax threshold to court that I'm sure there'll be someone out there that will litigate it to kind of get clarity. And I think, you know, Brian, to your point is, you know, you had said that this is really a benefit for taxpayers, you know, to provide some clarity, right? Because, I mean, our experience generally tends to be, it's like, well, just, I want to do the right, taxpayers want to do the right thing. They just need to know what the right thing is. And so the greater amount of, and, you know, Wayfair from a sales tax perspective was almost a blessing because it gave us like, this is what you were supposed to do. You sell this amount, you need to get a license, you need to do this. So it's like, okay, well, that's the rules. It's kind of a cost of doing business. And so, you know, there is some benefit that, but after, you know, the trickle down of that is like, states really benefited from all of these increased sales tax licenses. States will increase from the more modern language. Cause I can think specifically from our, per, you know, we have a, a large client who sells almost exclusively through the internet but and we do claim 86272 but some of these new interpretations will will kind of switch from a protected state to a non-protected state you know going forward and so it is it is nice to kind of have that clarity and to kind of like 
put it out there. But at the same time, you know, it's, we're going to have to have some conversations and taxpayers are going to say like, this is ridiculous. The fact that like I took a job applicant from someone in North Dakota, I now have to file an income tax return. I didn't even hire that person, but the ability to apply for a job, you know, when I sell bookmarks, you know, I now have to give you a slice of my, of my profits. So, you know, we will have to have those conversations. And at the end of the day, though, it is up to the taxpayer to say, file or not file. And we'll just, you know, take our chances or not, or whatever that's going to look like. Uh, well, absolutely. I, I'll, I'll add to, to the conversation that I, I think many tax administrators, and I'll speak for myself for sure, we're, we're concerned about the implications of the complexity of the tax system, particularly on, on small and, and medium-sized businesses. And certainly in 1959, advocates of the statute spoke specifically about tax burdens on, on, on those businesses. And, and so to the extent that states are concerned, and, and, and they should be, um, the question then is, well, what can be done about the situation? And it, it's become clear to us at the MTC that Public Law 86-272 is just not the answer. And and the best example of that, perhaps, and this goes to one of the scenarios, actually, in, in, in the revised statement, and, and that is the use of marketplaces. So, so there, there, there are many small businesses that just sell on the internet, and their marketplace facilitator, as we all know, is likely storing their inventory near customers in taxing states. And so it seems pretty clear in, in those situations, 86272 provides no protection. And, and there are other situations like the bookmark seller, perhaps, uh, to, to North Dakota as well, where a relatively small seller may find itself in, in a new situation. So if 86272 is not the answer, what is the answer? And, and, and the answer, frankly, is that states need to enact a system of thresholds kind of analogous to the Wayfair South Dakota thresholds, a factor presence nexus scheme, which is actually something that the MTC proposed, developed a model some years ago. But that's the solution, at least with respect to businesses that have uh, relatively few contacts with the tax, uh, taxing state or, or makes few sales to a taxing state. Or, or, you know, going to Congress and get the statute changed, I guess. Well, yeah. well that's what I was going to ask. Let's like, add it to the list that, of what we need. Right, right. Yeah. Do you think that there'll come a time when public law to 672 will just disappear? I mean, obviously it's still there, but do you think it'll just disappear? To your, to your point about the having like a factor presence nexus. I mean, because right now we have factor presence nexus in 10-ish states. We still have to layer in public light of 6272, right? Sure. And whether do we have to source income there? Maybe we have nexus, but maybe we, you know, we don't have to source the income there. So do we do you think that there might be a time when public light of 6272 will just go away? Well, I, I don't given the way that Congress operates, I mean, as, as a technical <laughs> Maybe legal Maybe not matter, in our lifetime. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and, and it will continue to play a role uh, to the extent that out-of-state businesses only engage in solicitation 
of orders of tangible personal property, those businesses will be protected. But we all realize that you know the business world is is more complicated now. Many businesses don't sell only tangible personal property. And given kind of the nature of the competitive world, ever more businesses are engaged in a whole variety of in-state activities. So I, I think it's fair to say, and, and both of you would have a perhaps a better sense of this than I, but the, the impact of the statute has been withering some over the course of time. And, and to, to, to Meredith's point, I, I've heard many stories where uh, taxpayer representatives have examined potential liability and have discovered sometimes not even known to the in-house tax people of a business that their business have has engaged in a variety of activities that are not protected. It's just kind of the way of the world. So it's kind of a long-winded answer to your question, but I, I think it's fair to say that as time goes on, the statute is going to have less and less real-world impact in the business world. But it's not going away. At least I was going to say, at least not for now. Uh, right. <laughs> Right. Well, Brian, we really appreciate you being here. We really appreciate your insights. This was a Stacy and I could probably pick your brain for hours. I don't know that <laughs> anyone else wants to listen to us pick your brain. <laughs> Call <laughs> maybe, anytime. Maybe. Well, I was thinking about it. It was like, all right, we're we're a group of Illinois natives, so we, yeah, we are. You know, yes. Bring uh, out Michael's a neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Michael's in Indiana, so huh? we can. Uh, Chat about the homeland and 86272. So again, thank you for being here. We really enjoyed this conversation. Stace, thank you for being our guest host today. This Thanks is Cultivation. Until next time. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended, nor should it be relied upon as legal, tax, accounting, or investment advice. You should consult with a competent professional to discuss specifics of your situation and the applicability of the information presented.